Break the Cycle with DSD, episode number 26. Today's episode is brought to you by hypnosisdownload.com. Hypnosis Downloads offers over a thousand self-hypnosis MP3 audio files in areas that help with social anxiety, relationship, self-confidence, and more. You can learn more about them and support the channel by visiting www.dadsurvivingdivorce.com slash hypnosis. The information in this show is my opinion and for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult a medical professional or a psychological professional before making any changes that could affect your mental health. Hey guys, today I have something really special for you. I have been trying to get with this person for months to talk about what he's doing. And today I have uh, the privilege to bring Mark Ludwig in with us, who is the founder of American for Equal and Shared Parenting. And uh, I've been wanting to bring him on for him to share with you guys what his organization is doing, the approach they're taking, and uh, some of the successes and troubles that they've had with that. So, Mark, thank you for for hanging out with us and, and giving me this opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I, I always appreciate any chance I can to help raise awareness for the cause. Yeah, and so speaking of the cause, could you just go in? Because I, I know I know I've chatted about your your uh, your organization a little bit on some of my live streams, but for for the audience that's just tuning in who may have not heard about uh, who you are and what you're doing, could you please uh, just give us a give us the 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 the, the skinning on what you're doing? Uh, yeah, I started an, an organization called Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. Uh, we started a little over a year ago. Uh, the goal is to try and partner with other organizations that are out there. I, I There's never going to be one solution to all the issues that are, are being drummed up in the family law industry and, and community. Yeah. Uh, so there's no way one group or organization or person can be the answer to everything. Um, I just happen to have been very fortunate. Uh, I have a, a, quite a background in politics and the legislative arena for 30 years. And it seemed to be a niche that there seemed to be a void in of people that had the connections with people at, at the state level and at the federal level. And uh, so I, my, my goal is twofold. Number one, to try and push for legislation myself, uh, both at the federal level, trying to get changes to Title IV-D and the funding mechanism. And we can probably talk about that in, in a little bit here. Yeah. And then at the state level for what I call a 50-50 rebuttable presumption, which uh, basically just means that when you walk into a courtroom, until you know any facts at all, the child should be presumed to have equal access to both parents, subject to other variables. So that's my first goal is, is to push for legislation myself because of the connections I have. Uh, and then the second goal is to educate, enable, and empower other people. Uh, I've said over and over, to, and I know people think that I'm being phony, but it's very sincere. I really don't want to be the person. I would much rather be known as a person who trained a thousand people than the person who made the changes, because there's just there's just no one person that can do it. It's it, there's just so many variables, so many different uh, idiosyncrasies, so many people have to be met with. So I do these uh, Facebook lives on Monday nights, uh, trying to educate people in the process of uh, what do you need to know when you contact a legislator? How do you deal with a legislative assistant? How do you maneuver things through the system? Uh, just because so many people, the the overwhelming majority of people have never been involved in politics and they get hit with an issue and it's a very emotionally charged issue. I mean, you take someone's child out of their life, you know, you could take, you know, if you have to, you could take a divorce, you could take, you know, losing the car, losing the house, but man, you take your child out of your life and it's, there's just too much emotion pulled up in that. And so what most people do is they don't know what to do. They're mad. They're angry. They think they want to go protest at a courthouse. 
and I understand where they're coming from. Right. But they don't realize that that was a very effective method before social media. You know, people say, well, but Martin Luther King did it. We're in a very different environment than we were in when Martin Luther King was around. With him, yeah. they didn't have social media. So that was his only mechanism to be able to do something to, to make the changes. We're now in an in a era where most legislators are actually pushed away from any kind of protest. And, and in many cases, you're losing ground by doing that. So I'm trying to educate people so that they don't feel like, you know, I, I just got done doing a 37-city tour. And a uh, matter of fact, this is the first time I've been in St. Louis for 10 straight days since August. Uh, but, uh, but as I said, I don't want to be that guy. What my hope in every city that I go to, I hope when I leave people that they feel inspired that they can make the change. They don't feel like, well, wow, that's neat marks here. But boy, when he leaves town, we can't get the change because we don't know what he knows. I, I want to empower people so they can be the ones that can change. That is a, that's a really, that's a, a very powerful thing. And I, and I think one, one thing people don't understand is, you know, when it's happening to you and you're, and you know, like you say, you know, protest at the, or go to the courthouse and make a ruckus, it's not an effective way of time. I mean, you, I, I really like how you're trying to change the system utilizing, I mean, from within, you're trying to educate legislature, you're trying to educate people to, to do it the right way to, to make these positive changes and try to make the, the, the court system not so toxic. I mean, I think one of the, the, the things I've, I've noticed with your story is, and this is, and this is my take, and I'll say, cause you're, this whole shared parenting thing, when I first started hearing about it, maybe six months ago or a year, maybe it was around the time you started, I was like, man, that, if you could walk into court and it was like, okay, it, barring any other, you know, domestic violence abuse or, or some other substantial thing, not, not the, the, oh, I'm now going to claim it, but it's like you walk in, boom, it's 50, 50. And then the kids aren't pawns. I mean, then somebody, if they're trying to use the kid as a pawn, they're going to have to basically try to pry that 50, 50 away. And I, and I know on, in my audience, sometimes people get, you know, they're like, well, but the abuser is going to have 50, 50. And, I, and I've often used my story. I'm like, well, look, if, in my situation, I think that it's more toxic, you know, in, in the other direction. And if I was, I mean, if I got the, the standard visitation every other weekend, then that means the kids are in that environment, you know, 80% of the time. I mean, if you get it to where it's, it's 50, 50 right off the bat, then it potentially you could even stop some of the argument because you're not in a position to like, well, okay, I have a hundred percent and now I'm going to make, you know, make your adversary. And, and just to be clear, I mean, the adversary could be, uh, the, the mom or the dad. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people ha tend to think that this is just a man thing. I mean, if, if you're the man, you are going to be stuck in this. But from my experience, that's, that's not entirely the case. And if I think, if I remember correctly from what some of the things you've said, that is true too. I mean, there are, the system can be abused both ways. Has that been exactly. your experience as well? And, and that's the thing is, is kids end up being used as pawns. Yeah. And, and that creates, even in my mind, that creates an environment for even more abuse. And, and, you know, when people talk about domestic abuse, well, if the kids are being used, once again, you've got somebody emotionally charged and yep. you have them fighting over their child they are more likely to be physically abusive in that situation than they are in a 50-50. Right. If both parents know, and, and I get you know, calls on a, on a daily basis from parents who say, you know what, I, I wasn't as riled up until I met with my attorney. And my attorney basically told me that, look, there's not going to be a 50-50. It's going to be a winner-take-all. So yeah. you may think, you know, because they, they went into their attorney saying, well, I want to play nice. I don't want to. And their attorney riled them up and said, no. You don't play nice. You need to start thinking of 
anything they did bad. You need to go into their background. You need to find out why, what dirt can you dig on them. And that, that just makes things even worse. I, I just have to imagine, and not in all cases, there are some people that are narcissist abusers that just, and, and so my heart goes out to people that are in those type of situations. Uh, trust me, I fully understand it. And, and I know for some women, sometimes men can be, if the, they, they technically, they say there is more domestic violence aimed at men, there is women. However, the degree of violence is higher on, I mean, women against, there's, there's technically more domestic violence, women against men, as far as quantity of violence. However, the quality of violence is much more, uh, you know, harder from a man to a woman. Right. And so that's why it gets a lot more airplay because if a man is going to be abusive, it's, it's usually there's a tendency to be much more physically violent. And if it is physically violent, because men are stronger in most cases, <laughs> not at all, look at me, <laughs> but in, in most cases, right. uh, it can be pretty extreme. Um, however, I just have to imagine, aside from that percentage of people that are the narcissist abusers that have other issues going on, I have to believe most parents walking into a courtroom, if they met with an attorney that said, look, in our state, you're probably going to get 50-50. Yeah. I have to believe most parents would say, you know, let's put that money in a college fund. Let's stop arguing. And and I have so many parents that I talk to on a weekly basis that tell me, you know what? I was one of those. I fought 50-50. I thought it was going to be horrible. And I have to admit, it actually got better once we started doing 50-50. Well, if you can co-parent, if you can work together, it is going to be better. I mean, and I, I don't think people... Uh, I mean, and I get, I mean, and, the, and particularly my audience typically doesn't have somebody who on the other side who is reasonable and does want to co-parent, but I mean, you're right. It sets up this adversarial situation, which is just horrible. I mean, I remember thinking even when I was dealing with my attorney, sometimes I thought the paralegal that I chatted with her, that their job was just to make me angry so that I would <laughs> need more billable hours to talk to the attorney. I mean, it was like, this uh, is I'm insane. convinced a lot. That's their mentality is, is yeah. they know that's their, that's their money. That's how they make a living. Yeah. So they need to rack up the billable hours. So I wanted to ask you, so when you, when you started to, to push this and I know, uh, I mean, we haven't hit it yet, but I know that you've met with, uh, uh, early in the administration, you, you met, I think with this administration, presidential administration, you met with people. I don't know if you have in, in the past, but how has this, how has your message and your, what you're trying to do been received by people? Are you, are you supported or is it, is it, are you kind of getting a weird eye given to you or I mean, how are they looking at it? Uh, extremely well. The key is understanding how to reach people. And that's why uh, you get people that, uh, some people are the very technically detailed people. Right. And they, they're so worried about the verbiage of a bill and everything. And I always tell people, it's like a, it's like a business. In a business, yes, you have to have a product or service. But mm -hmm. if you don't know how to market that product or service, if you don't have an advertising campaign and people that know how to sell the product, I don't care how good your product is, nobody's going to buy it. Oh, absolutely. And so what, believe it or not, 90% of what I do has nothing to do with the bills that we're trying to change. It's all about building the relationships. Mm -hmm. And the main reason is you have to realize that, you know, just at the state level, take the state of Texas. In the state of Texas, I go down there pretty regularly. They have over 6,000 bills this year that will be introduced or bill ideas. Wow. They have five and a half months. So you're a legislator. You have six. I mean, anybody ever crammed for a test in college? Can you imagine 6,000 different issues? And most of these people, their knowledge level, at least 5,000 of those 6,000, they literally have zero knowledge, right? Yeah. Zero. They're talking about 
you know, how to build a, a highway. They know nothing about concrete and steel and stuff like that. And all these kinds. So, you know, 80% of all the bills, they have zero knowledge. And so what they normally do is they need to get some input from people. What they're always concerned about is, is the person feeding me input, though, two things. Number one, is this a credible person on the topic? You know, if they're talking highway, does this person know highways? If they're talking about, you know, chiropractic services in their state, are, are they a chiropractor? They know about the services. But the other thing they worry about, and what they worry about even bigger is this individual who's hounding me, because 6,000 bills, normally you've got 6,000 people that you're going to talk to in a five-month period minimum. Probably right. twice that at least. But the big fear they have is, was this person involved with some kind of questionable organization in high school or college that a picture is going to show up of me with this person in my office with them? Yeah. And they're going to say, and, and to use an example, and I don't mean to be offensive, but it's, it's it's some people can understand at least. You know, suppose someone would say a Ku Klux Klan member or something. And, you know, and there's a picture of that person in an outfit or something like that. And all of a sudden, this legislator is seen saying, well, look, they just met with a Ku Klux Klan member. Yeah. And so a legislator has to be on guard at all times of this person I'm allowing in my office. Can we do we know that we can trust them? If not, I'm going to I'm not going to let my guard down and tell them how I really feel about their bill. Mm -hmm. And so what 90 percent of what I do is, is understand the landscape. And when you meet with the legislator, when I go to D.C., for every eight hours that I spend in a legislator's office or, you know, on the Hill, if you will, I spend a minimum of 24 to 30 hours doing research. I'm researching that legislator. I'm researching, you know, where they go to college. Were they in a fraternity? Were they in Boy Scouts? Do they play a musical instrument? Anything I can to find a connection. Anything at all. Because just like anything else, you know, if you're Italian and you walk into a restaurant, say a German restaurant, and there's one Italian in the restaurant, if you're Italian, I promise you, you're going to have a bond with that Italian right away. Right. You know, at least to some degree, because people find, they love to find people they have something in common with. So I'm trying to find at least four points with everybody I meet with. What do we have in common? Because by doing that, I'm semi-vetted. Now they can let their guard down a little bit. Right. Now, for me, I'm very fortunate. I have a background in the Republican Party. Now, if anybody's a Democrat, before you attack me, let me <laughs> assure you, we need my counterpart on the Democrat side. And I will work with them because that's what we need. The way to get a bill passed, you've got every once in a while, you know, some people know last week I met with some people from the White House and, and uh, I've now got a personal representative at, at Vice President Pence's office. And I get people, they say, well, they're Republicans. You shouldn't be meeting with them. And, and I think, do you realize how ridiculous that sounds? Right. I don't care if you like them or not. If it was Obama in office and I had a chance to meet with Obama, you better believe if I want legislation passed, I meet with, I don't care who they are. If they're in the White House, I want to meet with them. But it helps if you have someone that's vetted within each party. I happen right. to have a lot of contacts within the Republican Party, which makes me very vetted. You know, there's people within the White House that know my name. So if a senator calls, it's powerful when somebody from the White House says, oh, yeah, I've met with Mark. I know him. Yeah. But we need someone like me on the Democrat side. And can you imagine how powerful we could be as a community if we had both me and whoever my counterpart is meeting on a weekly basis saying, hey, I meet with this person, yeah. this person, this person. Can you meet with this one over here? Now, we kind of have that with LaShawn Ford. LaShawn's gone to D.C. with me before. Uh, he's the one that ran for mayor of Chicago, the Democrat okay. that uh, sponsored the bill in Illinois. Phenomenal guy. And it's funny because on every other issue aside from this. 
LaShawn and I are about as far on the end of the spectrum as you can imagine. But as smart business people, we understand it doesn't matter. If we want to get some changes to this issue, you've got to put the emotions aside. You can't have any party bias. When I look at LaShawn, I don't say he's a Democrat. I say he's a person who's in the family law arena and trying to get some changes made. And that's the first thing I see when I see LaShawn. And then we also know our, our boundaries. You know, I don't rub stuff in his face about Trump and he doesn't rub stuff in my face about how he hates Trump. I know he probably can't stand Trump and, but he, we've got enough respect for each other that we know, you know what? I have enough respect for him as a friend and as a colleague in the family law arena. We're just not going to talk about that. Well, but I, mean, I know he's excited. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, you guys have a, a common issue. And like you were talking about before, it's common ground. And I mean, if you are you have that topic that's important to you, then you need to find those those allies to help you make it happen. And this needs to happen. Yeah, it definitely does. And, and that's the key is people need to realize that we've got to reach the highest levels we can reach in both parties. Right. So if, if you're a Republican... You need to be darn fired up and excited. If you have somebody who's personal friends with Nancy Pelosi, I don't care if you hate her. Too bad. She's Speaker of the House. We need her support. And uh, in in the short term, she hasn't been as supportive of our cause. Uh, But you'll notice I never talked out about her. If I ever mention something, I'll mention an issue. I never put the person down as a person because we do need her support. Now, right now, we don't have it, but I don't want to burn our bridges. So you'll notice in my Facebook lives, I never put her down uh, because at some point we're going to need her support. But the same way here, we need people. And when people see meeting with me, meeting with people from the White House and, and Vice President Pence, they ought to get literally flat turned on and excited thinking, my gosh, for 25 years, we've been trying to get heard at these highest levels and we finally are getting heard. Yeah. You ought to be excited no matter who it is. Yeah, I mean, when, when is I mean, when has somebody had an opportunity to talk to people at that level on on this type of reform? I mean, and I and I and I I get the problem with it because anyone who hasn't experienced this, you just meaning divorce and a custody battle, you just don't have the context of how nasty this is. I mean, if you, I mean, I know even before me, I mean, I was like, oh well, no one's gonna. Nobody's going to fight and use their kids as pawns. That's like, there's no reason. And if they are, there's probably a good reason why they're doing that. And it wasn't until you're, you're right in the middle of it going, holy hell, this is not, this isn't right. I mean, I'm, you're being accused of things and, and, you know, like you were talking about earlier where, you know, the attorneys of, you know, bring out every bit of mud so you can throw it around. And, and it's just, it's a completely just destructive environment. And that, that's the hardest thing is educating people. So many people, they want to attack the politicians and say, why haven't you made changes? I, for the overwhelming majority, they can't comprehend what we went. I, oh, yeah. Nine years ago, I would not have understood myself. You know, and I the best you. example I give is, is parental alienation. Yep. If someone hasn't been through it, it seems like you're nitpicking. If you say, well, you oh, know, man. they have my, you know, my child call me by my first name. Or you think, oh, well, that's a little thing. Well, it may by itself and isolated, it may sound like a little thing, but it's not. But a hundred of those little things in a 30 day period of time is not a little thing. It's a cumulative of a thing. And it's a process of alienating a child from a parent. The challenge mm-hmm. is for the average person who hasn't experienced it. They, it's, it is so hard to comprehend a, a concept like parental alienation or, you know, or narcissist sociopath. Yeah. You know, for most people, you would think. No, that's not really happening. Well, yeah, it is. But until you've been through it. And so that's 
the same situation for even just an average custody situation. The average person out there thinks, well, they at least get every other weekend. They don't realize the detriment to that child because the child has the primary trauma of the parents have separated. Right. And and children for a child that alone is the trauma before they were even separated from the parents. Just realizing the security of mom and dad together isn't isn't a force in my life anymore. Right. And especially if they're younger, they have no idea how to verbalize it. So it stays trapped inside. Now they have the secondary trauma of one of these parents I'm only seeing periodically. And in most cases, like with my son, I don't ever talk about our custody situation. Uh, he knows that I love him. I tell him, you know, that I miss him when he's gone. But I don't mention the fact that, oh, by the way, I want more time than your mom's giving to me. So, yeah, in his mind, how does he know? In his mind, he's thinking, well, you know, maybe dad doesn't want to see me too often. So it's it's a yeah. crazy balance that you have to walk between not discussing something that a child can't grasp at nine years old, but giving him the love and affection that he needs to feel secure that dad loves him. Right. And, exactly. But, but, even with that, though, a child is still internalizing. I'm confused. I don't understand why I don't see my dad as much as I see my mom. Or, and, and as you said, it is becoming a gender neutral issue. So my apologize. I, I Because I'm a guy, I tend to always say things from the guy's perspective. But I want to assure if there's females out there going through this, and there are, I talk to them on a daily basis. I want to assure you, I'm fighting for you just as much as I'm fighting for the guys. Because I'm not fighting for father's rights. I'm not fighting for mother's rights. I'm fighting for the kids. Yeah. The kids need both of us. And, and even with my son's mom, as much as I disagree with everything she's done over the last nine years, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I know my son loves his mom and, and he needs her. And, yeah. and I want him to always feel comfortable in this environment. If, you know, I don't ever have to want him thinking, oh, you know, I, I can't mention about my mom. I can't mention that I love her. I want her to feel comfortable. Hey, she's your mom. And I love you so much that I want you to express your love any way you feel. Yeah. And that's really important. I mean, and I think that's where, you know, some people who haven't been through it miss it is that if you have a situation where one parent has a majority of the time and they're setting up an environment that the child is not safe to express anything positive about the other parent, it's horrible, you know, and and I've dealt with people where when they do see their kids, they're, they're a standoffish or primarily most of the time, once you've had your kid, you know, they've been with you and they feel safe with you, they'll relax. But, you know, there's a lot of built uh, pent up trauma and issues that they're dealing with. Like, like, like you mentioned, I mean, a, a, a child just doesn't understand the adult issues of this and they're just trying to survive a very bad situation. It, it, you know, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah. It, the, the, and you can see it in your kid. You know, I can, I can yeah. see a, it's funny. I had some friends of mine from church that were, we, we took my son out to eat one day during the exchange, you know, at the exchange and his mom was coming to get him. And it was a night and day difference from the time his mom walked in that restaurant. And yeah. and the friends I was with, they were like, if I hadn't seen that, I would have never believed just a total change in demeanor. And just because, and that's it is he's confused. He doesn't know how to express things. All he knows is, you know, if things are being said in another house, he can't express love to his dad in front of other people. Right. And then, and, and then you're in a situation where he's there, you're there, everyone else is there and he doesn't know what to say or do. Yeah. And it was just, it was really, but like I said, my friends caught it like immediately. They were like, wow, yeah. I cannot believe it was like an instant, happy, outgoing, aggressive to all of a sudden just his whole body just shut down. 
And yeah, it's, it's and, and then the, the hard thing is you don't know, you know, I'm not a professional child psychologist. So I, you know, normally what I do is I let him talk if he wants to, but I don't ever probe. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of times I'll ask him, you know, how do you feel about that or something? He had, he had made a comment one time because his, his, uh, I, I was driving to school. I don't get to drive to school real often. But uh, one particular day I was driving him and, and uh, we got there early and we're waiting for his school to open up. And uh, he made some comment about mom says if I came to school with you or I or mom says I couldn't live with you because I'd be late for school every day. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to get into it. So I just asked him, I said, how do you feel about that? He says, well, I don't know. You're always early every time we go somewhere. She's usually late. And I was like, there's no need to talk about that. Let's just you know, let him let him express what he has to feel and move on. And the other key is I, I make sure that I don't put his mom down. So I don't say, yeah. boy, you're right. Oh, she's always late. Because yeah. anytime you ever yeah. deatify the other parent, man, that that really is because indirectly you're telling him that he can't talk good about his mom around you. So, well, and and that example you just used, um, I, th I think the key thing that people don't realize is typically somebody who is trying to alienate, they're not necessarily coming out saying, you know, Mark is a horrible person and you know the worst dad possible. It's these little subtle comments that aren't really you know, very apparent that they're negative. It's very subtle that you're kind of just putting that in your, in the person's mind. I mean, I've, I've had that too. I've had a conversation with my, my oldest. I have, uh, my kids are, are 20, 18 and 13. And I remember, you know, a couple of years ago having a conversation with my oldest where he was talking about, well, mommy never says anything bad about you. And then like an hour later, he's like, well, mommy says that you tried to get so-and-so fired from their job. And I'm like, when, when did that come up in a conversation? It's like, oh, we were, I was going to bed and she just came in and said, oh, you know, your dad is doing this. And it's like, how? And I'm, I'm just like, hey, buddy, how is that not talking bad about somebody? <laughs> you know, I mean, but I mean, it's yeah, and I think, the things that I've heard over the years, it is just just shocking. Like I said, by themselves, it doesn't sound like yeah. a lot. But when you hear every single week, one or two more things piled on to the point where over a year, it's, it's literally over 100 different things. Oh, yeah. Like you said, they're little notches. Yeah, and, and people who haven't experienced it just can't comprehend it. And like you said, and typically what happens is if you do, if you do get in a situation where you're trying, well, and, and trying to defend yourself against these things, it's a waste of time because typically it blows back on you and makes you look unreasonable. But uh, exactly. it's just one of those things where you, you just have to, like you are talking about, you focus on giving the best environment for your child, make them know that they're loved you know, make them feel that they can count on you, that it's not conditional, that, you know, well, when I'm with dad, I have to make sure I say, you know, if I can come up with something bad to say about mom or, you know, vice versa. I mean, it's just, you don't want that environment. And it's just, yeah. it, it, but I'll test, you know, I'll ask you this, it's, it's tough to get to that point where you realize it, right? I mean, did you have some well, issues with that in the, the beginning? The challenge with parental alienation is people who haven't experienced it don't understand it. Yeah. And, and they think that you're the one that has a problem. And, but if you are experiencing it, you don't realize it until it's almost too late in most cases. Oh, yeah. In most Very cases, true. the pattern has happened for so long that that child has already been affected in a huge way by the time you realize what's been going on. For me, it was a long time before I, and what's interesting is I'm the third father in line. And I didn't even realize father number two, I, I'm embarrassed to admit I was a part of because I didn't realize. Oh that the principles that were going on the manipulation and uh, i had only met father number two three times and i and each time was only like five minutes or so at the most i thought he was the worst scum of the earth and and 
it didn't dawn on me till about six months into my situation that you were that the there was guy. a pattern. And I thought, you know, wait a minute here. That's the same thing that was happening to father number two. And that was when it's finally, like, like I said, I was six months into my, you know, situation before I realized that what I was going through was exactly what I was indirectly participating in without knowing on father number two. Yeah. And that, as a matter of fact, that's another reason I caught on. I think it would have been another year or two before the light bulb went on for me. It was just certain things happened. And I thought, wait a minute, that's the exact same thing happened that so to so-and-so. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I want to pivot back to the legislation because I, I think I saw on your Facebook group the other day that, that, uh, did you have a, was what, wasn't there a state that just passed the, the 50, 50 shared parenting or is that in, in the works or where have uh, you had yeah, some successes so far? Um, there's one state that passed one last year, Kentucky, okay. uh, the good and the bad. The good is it's the first state in the country that put the verbiage. There shall be a rebuttable presumption for equal or as close to equal as possible, uh, 50, 50 time. So that part was great. The challenges and amendment was added on two amendments. Actually, one was a uh, Senate substitute and excuse me, a Senate committee substitute. And one was a floor amendment that uh, the one says uh, if an order of protection has been or is being filed, the rebuttable presumption shall not apply. Now, for people who haven't hmm. been through it, they think, oh, well, that's no big deal. Yeah, that's But a for anybody else. If that's not the biggest red flag, that because you have to realize an attorney's job is to look for the loophole to get their client out of a situation. Yeah. So well, you, file, you, you file, a, file a, t a restraining order, a protective order, right around the same time as a divorce and exactly. say, there's never been an issue before, but now he's violent and she's finally, or he or whomever is leaving because of, yeah, that's the, that's yeah, the. So I, I, I have, a, for 80% of the people, I believe it's a good bill. I think it sends a message to the judges that that's what that state wants. Right. And I think the ethical attorneys are going to steer their clients toward that. Right. But I believe the number of silver bullet or, you know, we call basically false allegation cases, yep. I believe is going to quadruple in Kentucky over the next few years as the unethical attorneys, you know, take advantage of that. Now, Missouri is getting darn close. Uh, we just we've passed the uh, we, we do companion bills in both chambers. So that way, if one's really moving, we can just jump on that one and ride that train. Okay. And it just so happens they're both equal this year. Oh, uh, nice. Senate, Senate and House have both made it through the committee. So for both the bills, the next stage is the floor. That's and, awesome. And uh, the only challenge is, but that, that's the biggest challenge with the Kentucky bill is, the Kentucky bill set up a precedent for the country, both good and bad. Right. Now, when you add an amendment on, and I give people an analogy, it's like the U.S. Constitution. Most people couldn't quote a line of the U.S. Constitution if it, to save their life. But most people know the amendments, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth right, right. Amendment. And that's what an, an amendment basically says, that this bill would not have been complete without this amendment. So from a legislator's perspective, if a legislator hears about a bill being passed, they don't read the bill first. The first thing they read is the amendment, because in their mind, that amendment was so important and more important than the bill itself. So what's okay. happening across the country now in state after state after state, they're trying to use Kentucky as a precedent saying, well, Kentucky added this amendment on. So if you want this bill in our state, we need to add this amendment. Yeah. And they're trying that in Missouri. They tried it in the committees. We, we held off, but we have a strong suspicion they're going to try it on the floor like they did in Kentucky. 
uh, South Carolina. We submitted the bill. Uh, Jason Elliott, the re state rep, submitted the bill. It went to legislative research, which is the people who, who did the actual official writing of the bill to make sure it doesn't conflict with any of their statutes. And uh, it comes back from legislative research with an extra paragraph in it. Hmm. And Jason calls me up and he's like, Mark, what the... They added this paragraph and they said that it needed to be in there because of Kentucky. What's that all about? And I look and sure enough, there and we called the the, uh, the LR and he said, well, he said, we figured that since it was already in the Kentucky bill, we may as well just go ahead and put it in our bill too. And we're like, wow. No, 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 no. We're yeah. submitting the bill the way we have, not with the Kentucky amendment added in, but in most states around the country, they're trying to squeeze that Kentucky amendment in right now. And the domestic violence people across the country all united in every one of the states trying to get slide that amendment in. Well, that's because I mean, and I, I, I mean, I understand it. If you take it, you take out the false allegation part of it, and you're just coming at it from a, you know, every, you know, it's re, you know, it's real. Then I could see how people, and you'd be e easy to rile people up to say, well, you know, if we pass this bill, then an abusive person is going to, is automatically going to have 50, 50 and, and we're not going to be able to protect the children from it. I mean, it's a very compelling argument. And like you said, unless you've been through it, you don't understand the, what's going on. I mean, that, that it's, you know, I mean, it's like there needs to be a, in my mind, there needs to be a pattern of behavior prior to that, to where you, you, you know, it's like, okay, there are been numerous domestic violence, you know, calls, there's police reports, you know, a year in advance or whatever. And then the person finally leaves and then yes, you can do that. But, but to exactly, yeah. I, if, because the majority of cases, you know, CPS workers will tell you, you know, majority of yeah. abuse cases get filed after modification. So miraculously yeah. after they decide to split up, that's when they happen. Now that's once again, is like with you, if there's a sincere case of abuse, yeah. I never want that. Right. But exactly. I think what's exactly. important to distinguish is, are we looking at child abuse or domestic abuse? Because right. if we're looking at domestic abuse, every one of the 50 states already has a separate whole section of statutes on domestic abuse. Right. So if they're talking about abusing their spouse, unless there's been an allegation of abuse against the child, it really shouldn't apply. That should be dealt with in the domestic abuse part of the thing not in the custody orders. Now, if there's, if they've been abusing the children, that's a totally different issue. Oh, right. Yeah. But in most cases, believe it or not, I mean, if you have a 50, 50, I believe more than half of those people who are, 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 you know, potentially abusive to their spouse. I believe that would go away if they knew there was going to be a 50, 50. I think it just elevates it when they know that they're having to fight over the kids now. Oh yeah. I mean, it, I'm, you know, I mean, I look at even the, the allegations that, uh, happened against in my situation. I mean, and it, it didn't turn into part, part of the problem is, is the career I have. If you, if you push it too far, I'm going to lose my job <laughs> and then your check goes away, so to speak, you know? So I think, and that's, I, I often tell people, um, from my, on my side, if you have somebody who doesn't need you working, be very careful because if they really are malicious and narcissistic and abusive, there's their best case scenario is to get you thrown <coughs> in jail or, to, to, then they've won, you know, then they've, they dominate the, the play playing field. And you're basically just trying to, you know, dig yourself out of a hole. I mean, yeah. it's just not good. I had a, my, my, most of my family's in law enforcement. And I remember having a conversation early on in, in my situation, cause I wasn't planning on, I was filed for separation and, and was planning, you know, trying to decide whether to leave or not. And, and my brother at the time, who's, uh, 
deputy sheriff. He's actually a commander now, but uh, he he said at that time, he's like, you're a knucklehead if you stay there, because if I get called over there and she's saying that you did anything, you're going to jail and then you're dealing with a family court issue and a criminal issue. And I'm not going to risk my career to guess whether or not it's true or not. You know, I mean, it's, it's really scary stuff. Yeah. And so how do you, I mean, do you, are you seeing this coming for 2019? How are you feeling this shared parenting push is, is going? I mean, are you getting some really good feedback or, or how are you feeling about it? Um, I think we're, we're gaining ground. We have the challenges, as I said, in the past, people thought the way to get things done was protest at a courthouse. Right. And unfortunately, if you get 10 men together talking about an issue like this, the angriest one is going to be the most vocal and they're yeah. going to stir the crowd towards that. Well, the challenge is, you just walked right into the narrative that the Bar Association is trying to define. They try and make us look like a bunch of angry dads. Right, right. Well, all it takes is five or ten people together at a courthouse, and you just walked right into that trap of reinforcing the angry dad issue. Yeah. And so there's states like in Texas and Michigan, especially those two, where it's been an uphill battle because the narrative events against the angry dad was so hard that, you know, there's the, most of you know the uh, Father's Rights Movement organization. Yeah. In the state of Michigan, you don't even mention the father's rights movement if you want to get in the Capitol. Because if you're talking to a legislator and you even remotely mention that organization, they shut you down immediately. Now, it's a shame because it, it's it's totally false, but they've just they've rubber stamped that issue and that attitude amongst every uh, against everybody up there. Oh, I, so what we thought. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I remember the, uh, the watching the documentary, the Red Pill documentary. and Oh, yeah. And. I mean, it was a great documentary. If anyone's had an, hasn't had an opportunity to watch it, it's very interesting to, to see it. And I mean, it's, you're right. I mean, it's like they, it's so easy to pick in that, in, in that movement, little sound bites that make it look completely horrible and to, 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 and, and I've watched some of the videos on it and it's like, Ooh, you just said what? I mean, it's like, <laughs> what audience are you really trying to get to? I mean, cause your underlying message has some merit but you just, you just ruined, I mean, you just made it to where it's not consumable for most people. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's really sad. And I mean, and, and on the document, I don't mean to go down the documentary <laughs> thing, but one of the things I thought was really interesting about that story, and I can't remember the, the lady who did it, is, I mean, that, that, her doing that documentary destroyed her professional career. Yeah. I mean, I've seen other interviews where she, you know, people, you know, she, her eyes were open, right? So now she, she put out a piece that she thought was like, Hey, here is a, here's a real look at these people and the real issues and what's going on. And nobody wanted to hear it. And on top of not helping the MRA type movement, it destroyed her professional career as well. I mean, it was just really, yeah. it's really an odd, odd, odd situation. So. Yeah. So the, the challenge we had for 25 years is overcoming that stereotype. Yeah, uh, I think the last three years, more progress has been made in the last three years than all the years combined prior to that. Well, you know, and I would say one of the things that I, and I, I well, I want to ask you this question because maybe, maybe this is just a, a feeling or, a, you know, my perception is it seems that since this is, is becoming a, a more gender, gender neutral issue, you know, women are being ordered to pay child support and alimony and, and women are losing complete custody and the stay at home dad or even, you know, the working dad is, is getting full custody. Now it's bringing into light. It's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, the angry dad thing. I mean, this is, there, there's something going on here. And it, and it seems like that's been kind of the real catalyst for change where people are going, well, wait a minute, 
maybe we need to rethink this. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, it definitely has helped. And that's why I try to get people to understand we need to be building coalitions. Every once in a while, on, on you know, there's about 800 different shared parenting pages on Facebook. Right. And uh, every once in a while, I get some that they're, you know, I get some where women don't want to acknowledge any, you know, men that are having the issue. And then I get some where the men don't want to acknowledge. And I'm like, okay, we need to embrace the fact that, first yeah. off, if you're a guy, you better you better not like that someone's in the situation, but if they're in the situation, you better be glad that if they're a female, they're speaking up. Yes. Because that helps to neutralize. I mean, yes. that really does help neutralize that issue. And then the women need to understand it's so much easier for a woman to attach her issue onto the men's issue than to fight on their own. The larger yeah. a, a coalition we can have, the more powerful we are. So I know I get a lot of women that uh I get this all the time where I'll forget to mention that I'm fighting for both genders. And somebody say, well, he just talked about men. And I'm thinking, no, I didn't. I told my situation. I happen to be a guy. I am a father. So I'm fighting right. for my, for my son's right to his father. That doesn't mean I'm saying that women don't go through this. Right. But the interviewer didn't ask about that. They asked about my personal situation. <laughs> and I happened to mention that I'm a dad, look, you know, fighting for my son. So yeah, but you almost have you almost have to to be aware of it and then you know and and when they do that put it out there that it's both just to try to 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 hit that because well, I, I try to do every time it's just yeah. everyone's all you'll forget and you get people that have a chip on their shoulder that want to create an argument i'm like no oh, we're, yeah. we're all in this together we, yeah. we you can't be dividing the opposition wants us divided oh, they absolutely. want us to be arguing the because occasionally you'll get trolls from the bar association that on my pages, they'll say, you know, he's just trying to get Republicans and blah, blah, blah. And it, why? Because if they can create division where we get the Democrats not liking me, oh, man, we've just cut them in half. And if we oh, yeah. get the men hating the women, what we've got to realize is we need men, we need women, we need Republicans, we need Democrats, we need minorities. We're all, you know, in 30 years of politics, this is the only issue I've ever been involved with that it literally crosses racial lines, economic lines, gender lines. I've never seen an issue that touches everybody. I know we're starting to run out of time. And one of the things I did want, and I wish I would have asked earlier, but one thing I, I do want to hit, because I think a lot of people don't understand it, but can you talk a little bit about Title V and, and the reform that's happening with that yeah. and, and how that has created this problem, in your opinion? Yeah, and that, that's the real problem. People wonder, why is this taking so long to fix? Two, two main reasons. One is there's so much money for the uh, family law industry uh, you know, there's more money made in family law than there is in, in personal injury law. So if they can keep those billable hours going, and, and the easiest way is to have a winner take all. If there's a 50-50, most people would say, yeah, let's put that money in a college fund instead of spending 20000 a piece on attorneys. Right. So the Bar Association wants us to keep fighting. The big problem, though, is the federal incentive money. And what the program started with a good intent. It started in the 70s. And if you think back to the 70s, you know, this is the, when I was growing up. This is the Beaver Cleaver Day. Yeah. You know, on my street, my dad was a chemical engineer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My next-door neighbor had a working dad and a stay-at-home mom. The cores across the street, they, every fa there was not a single woman on our street that had a job. They were all stay-at-home moms. Right. So picture a stay-at-home mom who's been out of the workforce for 12 years. And, you know, maybe they're her only job, like my mom. My mom's only job was while my dad was in college, she was a teller at a bank. And then once they got married, she stayed home to raise myself and my sister. Well, if my parents would have gotten a divorce, it would have been very hard for my mom 
who'd only been a teller at a bank for maybe a two years of her life to get a job to be able to support my sister and I. Right. And so they set up a system because of what they were realizing is back in those days, primarily the father, but if the father wasn't paying child support, the woman was ending up on welfare. And so they said, if this person is creating a burden on the federal government in welfare, we're going to create a system to go after that person who's not paying child support to get the the money back that we're not getting, right. you know, that we're paying out in welfare. And so that I technically agreed on. It was a means tested program that the only people there were the people the government was being forced to subsidize because child support wasn't being paid. Right. However, everything changed during the Clinton years in 1997, 98, when 19.3 million people were included in this Title IV-D formula. So every child support case that went through a state got lumped in with the means-tested program people. And the big challenge is there's two parts of this program. One is states are reimbursed 66 cents on the dollar for every dollar they spend in child support enforcement. Now, that's terminology we need to make sure people understand. I've seen a lot of misinformation on the Internet where people say states are making money for every dollar you pay in child support. The state makes X amount. That, that's totally incorrect. Okay. The state is being reimbursed based on the money they spend on child support enforcement. So oh, okay. if hypothetically a state has to hire three people to track people down for child support, two of those salaries are being paid by the federal government. Now, the problem I have with that is the bloating that takes place at the state level. You know, if I owned a restaurant and I had budgeted, say, for sake of argument, 10000 a year for three people to pay three employees to serve, you know, be servers at my restaurant. Right. So I had 30, I looked at my budget and I said, you know what? I think I can afford 30,000 a year in salary. And so I hire three people and the day they start, a rich uncle comes along and says, you know what? I want to help you out. For every three employees you hire, I'm going to pay two of their salaries. Most people wouldn't stop at those three. They'd say, you know, can you imagine how much better service I'd have if I just hired three more employees now? Yeah. Because my uncle's yeah. going to pay for two of those. Yeah. And that's what the government has done at every state level. So they've hired all these extra employees under the fallacy that, well, this money is just going to keep flowing from the government spigot. And just like anything else, governments love to hire, but they don't like to have to lay off. Right. Once they have those people in their budget, the last thing you want to do is to announce that you know, unemployment's going to rise because you had to lay off, you know, 80 state workers. So that's the first part is that 66 cents on the dollar. The big problem is the second part of this formula where five and a half billion dollars is put into a pot every year and states compete against the other 50 states. And the formula is based on five, five determining factors, all of which revolve around how much you collect and how efficient you are in collecting child support. So the problem that creates is, remember I said the Title 4D was, was started as a means-tested program to keep people off of welfare. Right. Well, imagine you're a child support enforcement worker and you have two files put on your desk. One file is a means-tested program. Somebody who, as a result of not getting child support, is on welfare. The challenge is both parties were probably low-income people anyway. So their child support order may only be $100 a month. Right. And they may have already changed jobs three times in the last year and maybe even changed you know, place of residence three times. But the other file sitting on your desk is a middle-class person. Their child support about is $500. They've worked at the same job for the last three years. Yeah. All you got to do is go garnish their wage. 
you're not going to waste time trying to track down somebody that you're not either a you're not going to be able to find them or if you do you're only getting a hundred dollars of credit on that formula right versus this person you get five hundred dollars for and so what's happened is the very people this program was set up for are getting off scot-free and they know it yeah because nobody's even wasting time tracking them down the big problem is part of this formula you have to increase the amount you collect every year or you get nothing in the pool. Mm -hmm. So the workers realize, wait a minute. And by the way, this money bypasses the general state budget and ironically goes to the very people who are collecting these orders. So they realize that part of their salary, part of their office budget, part of their, you know, everything that they do is based on these child support collection orders. Well, right. the second way that, you know, number one, you've got to make sure that you go after the big dollar ones. But number two, you need to get involved in the process of making sure that a judge doesn't give 50-50. Because if a judge gives 50-50, their incomes are semi-similar. It's not going to no be a big amount support. for child mm -hmm. support. Each person has a bedroom at their house. Each person has clothes at their house. So they each take care of their own expenses. But if you can talk a judge into giving an offsetting order every other weekend, now, not only do you have a need for child support, but every time there's a modification, you encourage that judge to up the ante of how much child support they're going to collect. Right. And that's why in, in the state of Missouri, you talk to any family law attorney in the St. Louis area, they will tell you, I could probably get you 50-50, but if I do, just so you know, your child support is probably going to double. I, I've had three attorneys tell me that. They said, because right now I get eight overnights a month, and I've had three attorneys that said, uh, first of all, I can't afford them because they've all said it's probably going to be twenty to fifty thousand dollars in attorney fees for me. Yeah, knowing the the person I'm dealing with, and they said, but the challenge, Mark, is you're probably going to have your child support double or triple. And I said, I'm thinking, how can that be? I'm going from eight overnights a month of to fifteen overnights a month, and they've admitted, hey, it's all based on that Title IV D money. The judges know it, and everybody knows it, but nobody talks about it. So are you working to try to get Title IV uh, reform as well? Or is that on your is that on your list of things? Yeah, that's not? the number one thing that we're all, because we're going to be spinning our wheels. You know, we're going to be like a hamster on a treadmill. Right. Now, we still need the state level. So I, I, I don't want people thinking, oh, let's just wait and get stuff changed at the federal. Now, right. we need both. <laughs> to be honest, we need a lot of changes. Um, I'm not an expert in judicial accountability, but we need people that are, are pushing at that. Uh, we need people like uh, Dr. Ch uh, Craig Childress. Excuse me one second here. Yeah, no worries. Uh, um, but uh, people trying to get the American Psychological Association to recognize parental alienation. So there's, you know, there's about 12 different wheels of the spoke. Yeah, yeah. Or spokes on the wheel. My focuses are the 50-50 rebuttal presumption at the state level and the Title 40 funding. But yeah, we've got to get that changed. The challenges at the federal level it's almost impossible to get a change without taking five to seven years right. on an issue like this. So <clears throat> I've started the process. I've had some um, just unbelievable reception out of the, the uh, Trump administration, uh, way better reception than I expected. Well, that's good. Uh, we've got some very good reception at the Senate in the house side. <clears throat> unfortunately, we don't have the reception that we need at this point. Well, but at least you, you know, you're building momentum and, and that's the key. So as we, as we wrap this up, where can people find more information about what you're doing, uh, who you are and your organization, you want to share any links or anything? And I'll put those all in the show notes and the description of the video as well. Yeah. Thanks so much. I always appreciate a chance to raise awareness. Um, yeah, we have a Facebook page called Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. 
So it's Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. And then we have uh, each state has their own chapter. So we have like AFESP space Missouri, AFESP space Texas. So each state has their own page too. And then the website is AFESP.com, which is the abbreviations of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. So AFESP.com. And then we are having a, a pretty big convention in June, June 28th and 29th in D.C., oh, cool. where I'm pulling together state leaders from all across the country. So anybody who's actively involved in working on legislation in any of the 50 states, uh, because this year I, I've been to 37 cities and I'm directly involved in 24 states this year. And so many times this past year, I've seen three states make the same mistake that this state learned from last year. And I'm thinking, man. If only I could have told these three what happened over here, I would have saved them three weeks of frustration. So my goal is in June to put the leaders from as many states as we can in one room for two days, roll up our sleeves and say, okay, this is how you need to write a bill. Because some people don't understand the structure of a bill is more important than the verbiage of the bill. You have to have definitions in a certain part of a bill. You have to have the standards of evidence whether it's going to be allegations, preponderance of evidence, or uh, clear and convincing. But the order you put those things in a bill can really affect future legislation you're going to try. Mm. And a lot of people don't understand that. So we're going to have a roll up our sleeves that if you want to get involved in state legislation, this is the place to be. We're going to have a panel for attorneys, a panel of mental health professionals, a panel of legislative experts. And then I also, it's not 100% confirmed, but there's a high probability I'll have one of these top two senior advisors to Vice President Pence uh, in attendance and uh, at least one member of U.S. Congress. And nice. that's something that helps people at the state level, because once if you remember, I said people are bombarded with all kinds of people at the state mm -hmm. level. If I'm a state senator. I have hundreds of people, hundreds of people a day trying to get to me. What makes you stand out over the other hundred people? Well, when you can say that, hey, I was in Washington, D.C., and you're not talking about Mark Ludwig, you're talking about you. Hey, I was in Washington, D.C., and I met with so-and-so who's a senior advisor to the vice president. Now you've got credibility in your state. You don't have to talk yep. about Mark Ludwig. You're the guy or you're the gal. So that I'm going to have awesome. some pretty influential people at that conference. Uh, and that's my goal is because I said, I don't want to be the guy. I want to give you guys connections so that you feel empowered and you've got the resources to make change in your state. That is amazing, Mark. And I, and thank you for hanging out and sharing what you, what you have going on. And, and guys check out, check out his sites. I'll put the links in the show notes for the podcast and on the, on the uh, channel. So check it out. And to be honest, Mark, one of my viewers is the one who originally introduced or not told me about, you said, you need to talk to this guy. And I know we've been trying to do this for a while. So thank you for taking the time to come and uh, share with what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you too. And that's why I said it, it really is a team effort. Uh, and it takes people like you that everybody has to figure out what is their niche. Yeah. You know, my niche just happened to be that I had the legislative connections, but we need all kinds of people. And, and I know there's probably people listening that say, you know what, I, I'd like to help, but I, you know, I don't know how to do a podcast or I don't know how to meet with a legislator. Possibilitize. There's something that you do, some kind of unique ability that you can contribute to the community as a whole. Yeah, you know, I don't know what it is, but you've got to try and possibilitize what is a value that you have? What's a skill, talent, or expertise that you can take that and contribute it to the community? Yeah, that's great. That's good advice too. So, all right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And, uh, and again, check out his, his information in the show notes and uh, hopefully we can chat again, again, again later.
Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Dwayne.